Good morning. <laughs> a few people know me, I guess. Today, uh, the reading is from Mark, chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, making his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Thanks, Greg. Well, if you have a Bible with you, open to Mark, where we'll be this morning, Mark chapter 1, and feel free to pull your sermon notes out from the bulletin as well to follow along. So what are you doing to prepare for Christmas? What are some of the things that you do in order to help yourself be ready for Advent and Christmas? Uh, Do you go to certain events? Do you bake cookies? Do you set up a tree? Do you fall off a ladder while setting up lights? Uh, What are some of the things you do to get ready for Christmas? I'd love to hear from some of you guys. What are some of the things you guys do to get ready for Christmas each year? Anyone? Anyone do anything to get ready for Christmas? Decorate your entire house. Okay, yeah. Anybody else besides Zachary? What do you guys do to get ready for Christmas? Wear an ugly sweater. What, what was the other one? Shop online. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Go see the lights in Naples. Yeah. If you guys are new to the area, Naples Island over in Long Beach, lots of great Christmas lights. You can walk around that area. Anything else? Bake Christmas cookies. Yeah. What's that? Send Christmas cards. That's great. That's great. Well, I love I love hearing those traditions, and I hope that whatever you guys do to get ready for Christmas, um, that it's a really helpful time for you today. Um, What I want to look at um, in our passage today is how God prepares us for Christmas. What does God do for his people in preparation for Jesus' coming? How does Jesus, uh, how is the the way paved for Jesus to come the first time? And what does that teach us about getting ready for Christmas even this year in your life and in my life? Because I would imagine that for everyone here, there are more opportunities to get ready for Christmas than there is time to carry them out. I'm going to guess that in December, at some point, you may feel some stress or strain, feeling like you're not meeting all the expectations that you have for yourself or other people have for you about what you're supposed to do during this month of December. That maybe there's not enough time or not enough bandwidth or not enough capacity to get things done that you feel like you should get done. And maybe even in me talking about this, I am stressing you out right now. And you are thinking... (laughs) I could be, or maybe I am, shopping online right now during <laughs> the sermon for gifts. And if you are, you can look up, uh, I, I'm a 2XL, and I would like a new UCLA sweatshirt. No, I'm just, just joking. No, uh, and I wonder, too, if the idea of even preparing to have a joyful Christmas feels impossible for some people here today. That the idea that, you know, no matter how many Christmas cookies I make, no matter how many lights I put up, like, this is all going to feel hollow come December 25th because of the relationships that are fractured or the people that are missing um, or just the, the depression that I'm experiencing. Like, it, just, it doesn't feel like a joyful Christmas is even possible, maybe, for some of us. 
I want to look at that too, and, and how John the Baptist really uh, represents for us what it means that God prepares our hearts for Christmas, and what it means to have a joyful response to the coming of Jesus Christ. So let's get into Mark chapter 1, and we're going to look at John the Baptist. This Advent season is focused on John, um, and we're going to learn some about his story here in Mark 1.1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. What Mark begins his gospel with is this prophecy. It's actually from three different passages in the Old Testament put together. And he says, uh, from the time of all the way back into Exodus, God has been telling you that there would be someone who would come before the Messiah who would call out, prepare, for he is coming. And that person is John the Baptist, Mark says. He's the one that God has sent in order to prepare you for Christmas. And so during this Advent, we're going to spend four weeks talking about John the Baptist, reflecting on what his life and his message were, and why God would need to prepare us for Christmas. I mean, why doesn't God, you know, if, if Jesus is necessary, and of course we believe he is, like, why doesn't God just send Jesus? Why does he send someone ahead of him to prepare? And what is that lesson that we can learn from uh, John the Baptist's life and, and what he said and what he did. John is an incredibly significant figure in the New Testament. Uh, sometimes we don't appreciate how important he was to the early church. He's referenced 90 times in the Gospels. Uh, he's the first prophet in 400 years in Israel's history. Um, he's a, his birth is, uh, his conception and birth are miraculous. He's born to an elderly couple as a result of God's direct intervention. Um, if you're new to the Bible, or, or maybe you're a little fuzzy, when we say John the Baptist, uh, we're talking about John, the one who was known for his behavior of baptizing. This is not the same as the group, the Baptists. Maybe you've heard of Baptist churches. Um, but he's the one who uh, brought this practice of baptism in that Christians would later adopt. And he's different than the John that wrote the Gospel of John. Uh, he's, that's, a, that's a different person. They just had the same name. So he's usually called John the Baptist. For the sake of this sermon, when I say John, I'm only talking about John the Baptist, uh, just to try to be brief. But what's most important about John is how he lived in relationship to Jesus. John is probably the second cousin of Jesus, maybe third cousin, uh, but he is significant because of uh, what he, how his legacy relates to the person of Jesus Christ. And while John was important in his own right, really why he's still remembered, why he's still discussed today it's because of how we related to Jesus. And the same thing is true for us. So today in our message, we're going to look at sort of three lessons from John's life. The lesson um, of repentance, the lesson of humility, and the lesson of worship. And how John makes three significant choices in his life that we have to make a choice. We have, we have an option of whether we're going to make the same choice as well. We're going to see how John prepared the hearts of people around him and prepares our heart for Christmas even today. So the first choice, John called people to repent. John the Baptist prepared people for Jesus by calling them to live in line with the values and characteristics of God. Look at verse 4. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism for repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan. And hear what they do, confessing their sins. 
For John, at the core of his message is calling people to a life of holiness before God. Don't miss this. At the core of Christmas is repentance. Repentance is central to the coming of the Messiah. For John to prepare the way for Jesus to come is the practice of repentance and holiness. And really, for Israel, the question was, would they repent and align themselves to God? So what does he mean by a baptism of repentance? What does it mean that John's practicing this baptism of repentance? So before John, baptism was only used in very rare occasions in Israel's life. And it was in order to uh, welcome a Gentile convert into Israel. So John takes this practice that was usually rare and only for outsiders, and he ascribes it to everyone on the inside. He says, everyone, if you're going to be part of the people of God, whether you grew up Jewish or not, whether you're observant or not, whether you're a priest or not, everyone needs to be baptized. This was uh, radical and insulting to people who are insiders. Imagine a politician who uh, rallies on the platform, we are going to make every citizen of the United States resubmit to immigration and a green card process in order to be naturalized into being American citizens. You'd say, especially if you, if you feel like, no, I'm an American. I've been an American. I was born an American. I can show you my, my birth certificate. What do you mean you're going to make me resubmit to becoming an American? Um, that's the same sort of provocative statement that John's doing by baptizing people who had been previously part of Israel. And he's not just baptizing them as a, an act of identity shift, but he's saying for repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. He's saying that they need to have a new identity and that the problem is not a problem outside in the world, but a problem of the heart. This is something that Jesus would teach as well, that the problem of sin is not a problem out there, that we're contaminated by other people, but the Bible consistently teaches that sin is a problem of repentance and forgiveness from the inside. Besides uh, baptism for conversion from Gentiles, the other time something similar to this baptism would happen was uh, ritual washings by the Pharisees and the people at Qumran who would say, um, we, need to, we need to wash ourselves from the stink and stain of the world. And if we can wash off the world, we'll be okay. And John says, no, you need baptism for forgiveness of your own sins. Right? The problem is from the inside out, not the outside in. And the third way John's radical in this is that he's the one doing the baptizing. You know, normally this was a sort of self-initiated activity of washing yourself. And John said, no, there's not enough moral fortitude in you to wash away your own sins. You need someone else to come and to baptize you. Now, all these things, you can see why these are forerunners of Jesus, right? Because you can hear in John's baptism three shifts that as Christians we talk about all the time, right? We need to go from... Uh, from being outside the kingdom of God to inside it. We need to uh, go from being unforgiven to being forgiven. And uh, we need to be uh, leaning on the righteousness of Christ rather than our own righteousness. And John, in, in his forerunning, sets up all these needs for the people of Israel. And he says that these are the needs that they're going to have and we're going to have. Now, if you were here last week when we talked about uh, John the Baptist, you might remember that before John was born, there was this prophecy about him that he would bring joy and gladness to all of Israel. And then this first week we're talking about him, we're talking about repentance and forgiveness and holiness. And it's like, I thought there was joy and gladness in this. Where's the joy and gladness in Christmas if we're just talking about repentance and feeling bad about ourselves and feeling ashamed and guilty? Well, really this gets into what the question is, what's joyful about Christmas? 
You know, most of our celebrations around Christmas have sort of a saccharine, happy, nostalgic quality. But at the root of Christmas joy is that our deepest needs are met in Christ. That our experiences of guilt and shame that are for every human being in history are met in the forgiveness of Christ. So when we say that John is bringing joy and gladness, we're not saying that he's bringing stand-up comedy and cake. We're saying that he is bringing at a, at a very deep level what we most need. Because joy comes when our deepest needs are met, right? Joy is a result of not just superficial needs being met, but, but the deep needs of the soul being met in Christ. And we see that in what John announces and what Jesus fulfills. And his ministry is really important for us today because I hope as we prepare for Christmas, and I, and I hope you guys have wonderful Christmas cards, I hope you have wonderful Christmas cookies, I hope you don't give me too many of them so I don't eat them all, um, but at the core of getting ready for Christmas is preparing our hearts before God. As Joy to the World sings, that our hearts would prepare him room, that lost in the busyness of the Christmas season, we don't miss the idea that a holy God is coming to dwell with us in Jesus Christ. And, and we want to turn our hearts towards him and align our lives, which is what repentance is, aligning ourselves with what is true about God. And so repentance is something that we all need to do in order to become Christians, and it's something that we continually practice as Christians, that we repent of our sins and turn ourselves towards God. For John the Baptist, he's telling Israel that, that the Messiah is coming, right? By the time John the Baptist is preaching, Jesus is already 27, 28 years old. Like, he is coming. The question's not whether your repentance will get him to come, but whether you'll be on the right side when he does come. And the same question's there for us. Like, will we align ourselves with God or will we rebel against him? It's a decision that all of us have to make, right? And as we prepare for Christmas, the question of repentance is always in front of us. I, I wonder for John, um, John was such an influential figure in his day, right? I mean, first prophet in 400 years, even today, uh, 2,000 years after John, there's a group in uh, northern Iran and Iraq that still say, oh yeah, we're the direct descendants of John the Baptist. Do you know what that group's called, by the way, anyone? It's not the Baptists, if you're going to say that. Uh, they're called the Mandeans. But um, can you imagine having that sort of historical influence that 2,000 years later, people are still talking about what you taught and who you were? Wouldn't there be such a temptation towards vanity and judgmentalism in John's heart? Maybe this is, maybe I'm just showing my own shortfalls and my own foibles, that I would think, man, if I was John the Baptist and people were coming up to me, like Luke 3 talks about, and saying, like, what should I do with my life? And you're out in the wilderness. And by the wilderness, I don't mean like the Yosemite Valley wilderness. I mean like Death Valley <laughs> wilderness. Um, and wanting to hear your opinion on everything, there would be this temptation towards making much of yourself, wouldn't there be? Of thinking highly of yourself, of exalting yourself. But John's second choice that, that he makes, that we all have to make, is the choice of humility. Would John understand his mission and his limits? What he was supposed to do and what he was not supposed to do? You know, as you come to Christmas uh, in the next few weeks, I hope it'll be a time to remind you of your smallness, of your limits, of your finitude, you know, even as, as significant as John was in the Gospels, he is defined by who he's not, that he's not Jesus. There's n maybe nothing more enduring and striking about John than his recognition of who he worships and who he uh, cannot measure up to. Look at verse 6. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you 
with the Holy Spirit. Why does John live such an unusual life? Camel's hair, leather belts, honey, locusts. What's going on? I, I wrote unusual life in your notes. I could have written, why is John so weird? I mean, that would have been theologically accurate too. You know, some of it's political necessity. He's living out in the wilderness because of his, his message has some political opposition to it. But a lot of it's for theological significance. A lot of the stuff John's wearing, a lot of the stuff he's saying is pointing everyone to a prophet from about a thousand years before his day, a, a man named Elijah, who lived out in the wilderness and who, similar to John, had called Israel in a time of, of deep unrest to a life of repentance and holiness before God. And um, Malachi, among other prophets, had said one day that someone like Elijah would come, a forerunner of the Messiah, and that was John. And that's why John was so weird and, and unusual. Let me sound more like a pastor here for a second. Um, but there's, so that's the theological reason, but there's also, um, I think, an important reason for us to hear as well. You know, John lives out in the wilderness, like Elijah before him, like many people in the Bible, as a reminder of how small they were before God. I don't know, how, do you guys like camping out in the wilderness? Any of you guys? Okay. Um, I, I like to camp in places where there's, you know, where there's uh, restrooms nearby, uh, where there's running water, potable water available. Every once in a while, I'll get stuck in a situation where um, my manhood will be questioned and we'll have to go like on a backpacking trip somewhere where it's like, oh yeah, a bear could definitely eat you. <laughs> like, oh, great. Um, <laughs> but there is nothing like those times to be reminded of how limited we are, right? If you've been on a, a, a backpacking trip like that or out in the wilderness or driven through Death Valley and been reminded like, if my car breaks down, I'm going to die, right? Because there's, I can't survive out here, right? John is reminded and reminds us of his smallness out in the wilderness. And this act of humility causes people to think maybe he's the Messiah, but he wants to make sure that he is identified not just by what he does, but by what he cannot do, right? I cannot measure up to the Messiah who's to come. I cannot solve the problem of the human heart, right? I can baptize you with water, but what you need is the Holy Spirit, and I can't do that. Why does John point to his own limits, and what do we learn about that? You know, he recognizes that his value, his significance, is in who he's pointing people to, and that he is not the Messiah. You know, I wonder, what would happen if John would have pretended what if he just would have faked it? He's out in the wilderness. There's no internet. No one's going to Google him. Like, um, yeah, sure, I'm the Messiah. It'd be great to be the Messiah. Uh, I mean, not, not the whole dying on the cross for humanity's sin, but the first part of it would have seemed very intoxicating, right? There would have been a lot of pride and temptation, I imagine, to pretend. And the reason I say that is because there was at least 12 messianic pretenders in the 100 years before Jesus' time. People would go out in the wilderness, draw a big crowd, and pretend or maybe even fool themselves into thinking they were the one sent by God to lead Israel. But John chooses humility instead of self-aggrandizement. Think about the harm that would have come to John and to his followers and the people near him that he cared about if he would have pretended to be someone he wasn't. Think about how much less and how different his legacy would be if he pretended to be someone he was never made to be. You know, there's great harm in pretending, and there's great harm in attempting to live beyond our limits. Likewise, when we live within our limits, even if in the moment it's disappointing, there's good that can come out of that. I wonder if during Christmas we need to be reminded of this, that 
that being busy, living beyond our limits is not a virtue. Like, it's not valuable to say I'm the busiest person here. No one could be busier than I am. I'm the most busy, right? There is tremendous value in living within the limits of which God has created us. And I, I just say this maybe to myself more than you guys, but to you as well. Like, you will not have a perfect Christmas season. Right? You will not give perfect Christmas gifts to everybody in your life that will cause them all to feel deeply known and loved because you don't deeply know every person in your life. Right? You will not have a perfect Christmas Eve, Christmas morning experience where everyone in your family will live in harmony and peace and intimacy all day, right? Because that's not the world we live in. You will not uh, be able to have every Christmas experience have perfect social skills where everyone is amazed at how uh, casually confident you are in every situation. In fact, you're probably going to be awkward some of the time. In my case, most of the time, right? Because we all are within limits. Like we all live within the reality that we are not God, that we serve an infinite God and we're not him. And there's limits on all of our lives. Now, I want to be clear here. When I say that John lived within his limits and he didn't pretend to be someone he wasn't, that's not the same as our culture's message, which often says, hey, you need to make sure you live your authentic truth. Uh, that message uh, has its problems for, for different cases. But, but that idea of everyone has their own authentic truth they can live, that would say, no, John, if you want to be the Messiah, be the Messiah, right? Kristen, be the Messiah. Everyone be the Messiah, right? No, no, no. That, that's subjectivism, right? This is actually the opposite of that. This is objective. This is, John, you're going to harm yourself and you're going to harm other people around you if you pretend to be someone that God has not made you to be. Uh, that's, I think, a lesson from John that we all need to hear and listen and uh, understand around Christmas time, that John could point people to the need for a savior, but he couldn't be their savior. He could point them to the need for forgiveness, and he could even baptize them hoping for forgiveness, but he could not affect forgiveness for them. Only Jesus could do that. John the Baptist, in many ways, his legacy is saying that he couldn't do what they needed. Only Jesus could do that. And Christmas is a reminder that we still need Jesus to do those same things in our lives and to celebrate what Christ has done for us. Well, we'll talk more about John the Baptist and his limits next week in John 3 when he talks about uh, encouraging those who had followed him to now follow Jesus instead. Well, in the last part of our passage, I want to talk about what happens when John meets Jesus, this third choice that John's going to have. Will he make himself the center or will he make Jesus the center? Uh, so what happens when they, when they interact here in verse 9? In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth, Galilee. He was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. Or as the New Living Translation paraphrases verse 11, which I, I love. This is my son who I love, and he brings me great joy. Man, what words to say over your kids this Christmas season. This is my son, this is my daughter who I love, who brings me great joy. That's what the father says over Jesus. And we could, we could spend a whole sermon on that one verse, which, which I, I would love to do sometime. But I want to talk about John's role in this. This sort of, I, I did a wedding last weekend for a couple, which was a lot of fun. And one of my most uh, awkward moments of doing a wedding is when I tell them, uh, to kiss each other, and then they're doing it like this, they're kissing like this closer, and I just like, can I go somewhere else? Um, and I imagine, I imagine for John the Baptist, there's this moment of meeting between the father and the son, this beautiful moment, 
And John gets to have a front row seat to this, 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 this beautiful picture. And there's this question of, is John okay being in the supporting role? Or does he feel like he has to elbow in and make the story about himself? You know, for John and for us and for you and me, we have a question of whether we're going to make our stories about ourselves or about Jesus. And for John, he makes the right choice. He chooses to make much of Jesus and not much about himself. You know, we've mentioned that John is sort of the new Elijah. That's sort of his theological identity. And Elijah uh, was known for his uh, miraculous effects, especially at the River Jordan. And so John is the new Elijah. He's at the River Jordan. One of the things Elijah does is he parts the River Jordan. And now John, the new Elijah, is there at the Jordan, and it parts. But this time it's not the water that parts, it's the heavens that part. But you know what? They don't part for Elijah. They don't part for John. They part for Jesus. And the Holy Spirit comes down not on Elijah this time, but on Jesus. And the heavens speak, but they don't speak to the prophet, but they speak to Jesus. And John has this moment where he can either interpret this as this great act of participation or this great insult that he's not at the center. We have those same choices in our life. Will we be rejoicing that we get to participate in what God's doing in the world? Or will we be offended that, that we're not at the center of it? You know, if, if your story and my story um, is content to be a, a supporting part, we can be part of the mission of God in the world. But if you insist on your life being about you, with you at the center, you being the beginning, middle, and end, then it's going to be a tragedy, and the story will end with you. Right? The, the surest way to be forgotten in this life is to be selfish, to insist on everything revolving around yourself. But if your role is to point people to Jesus, then you're going to be part of the mission of God over all of human history. I just want to say one more thing before, before we close here. Some people are wonder, like, why didn't Jesus get baptized by John? Like, I, I thought you said forgiveness, you know, baptism was for forgiveness and repentance. Like, what did Jesus have to be forgiven of? What did he have to repent of? Like, why would Jesus bother being forgiven? And if you've never wondered about that, maybe you can wonder about it now. Um, well, Matthew, which all, all the Gospels talk about Jesus' baptism, because it was an important thing. Matthew includes a, a verse about this that might be helpful. Um, it says in Matthew 3, 14, John would have prevented him uh, from being baptized, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. Okay, you say, Baba, that doesn't make it more clear for me. What does it mean that he had to fulfill all righteousness? You know, the day would come when um, Jesus would fulfill all righteousness for us, right? When he would die the death that he did not deserve for your sin and my sin and the sins of all the world. When he would go into the grave, just as baptism is a metaphor of going into the grave by going into the water. He did not deserve it. He did not earn it. It was not fair or just, but he did it voluntarily in order to forgive us of sins. And Jesus begins his ministry with the metaphor of this. He goes down into the water not because he needs to or because uh, he deserves to, or even that there's something to be accomplished by this, but to fulfill and to point to the fulfillment that would come when he would die on the cross for our sins. And John is the guide who takes him there because that's as far as John can take him. You know, he's the one who could take uh, Jesus into the water in order to teach people what repentance would be like, but he's not the one who could forgive us. You know, like, like the poem uh, that was read a few minutes ago said, 
John was the, the least of the new, the greatest of the old. And John, I hope, I hope the sermon, the series inspires you to think highly of John, but, but he's always a limited figure, right? It's small compared to Jesus. Because he could call people to repent, but Jesus is the one who made a way for their sins to be forgiven. John could humble himself in what he ate, what he wore, where he lived, but Jesus is the one who would humble himself even to death on a cross for our sin. John could consider himself unworthy to untie Jesus' sandals, but Jesus' humility would lead him to untie our sandals and wash our feet. John could baptize us with water, but Jesus would baptize us with the fire of the Holy Spirit to cleanse us. And John could point to who was to come, but Jesus was the one who was to come. I hope that you have a, a joyful Christmas. I really do. I, I, I hope this isn't too much to put a downer on, on Christmas activities. But I hope that as you prepare for Christmas, you look at John's message and his legacy seriously. That you think about what it would mean for you to live a life of repentance, of humility, and of worship before God. That you would, like John, make choices that reflect that. Very practically, that you would prepare for Christmas by some time of intentional confession and repentance. That you would ask God, God, what do I need to repent of? What are some ways that I'm living out of line with the coming Messiah? If the one who is to come is, is not just a baby, but the king of the world, how do I live in preparation for that? And then secondly, God, how am I doing at living within limits? Do I recognize who I am, or am I pretending to be someone I'm not? And then lastly, how can I point to Jesus? How can I make this story of Christmas a success and a joy, not based on whether I look good this Christmas season, but whether I pointed people to you. Let's close our time together in prayer. God, we're grateful for John the Baptist. Uh, I'm grateful for the way that he models humility and courage and passion. God, I pray that uh, for everyone here that we would have such a similar sense of purpose and self-understanding and hunger for you. God, may you use our church, may you use us as individuals to point many people to Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.